Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and my guest this week is MSNBC and Peacock host, Mehdi Hassan. Before his Sunday show debuted on MSNBC last month, Mehdi was probably best known for his interviews, which typically go viral, thanks to the relentless questioning of subjects that are perhaps used to a more gentle treatment from the American press. His very contentious interview with John Bolton is a great recent example. Mehdi was previously a host at Al Jazeera, then a writer and podcast host at The Intercept before landing at NBC. I called him up on Wednesday afternoon to discuss the state of the news business in the post-Trump era, how he approaches interviews with dishonest politicians, and what he makes of the competition, including Fox News. Mehdi Hassan is the host of The Mehdi Hassan Show, which airs on Peacock weeknights at 7 p.m. and on MSNBC Sundays at 8 p.m. Mehdi, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So last month, you brought your uh, show on NBC's streaming platform, Peacock, over to an MSNBC proper. Uh, it airs on Sunday nights. How's that been going? Are you enjoying hosting a Sunday night cable news show? Yeah, I am. I can't really say no. It's, uh, it's the kind of thing that people uh, always aspire to. Uh, I, I can't say I saw it coming. It kind of was a, a great opportunity. But look, I've been doing the nightly show on Peacock Monday the Friday since we launched October 4th. We're coming up to our six month anniversary uh, on it. And that in itself was a challenge for me and fascinating for me because I'd done Al Jazeera English before, but it was a weekly show. I've never done a nightly show, a nightly one hour show. And on Peacock, the ad breaks are much uh, shorter than on MSNBC. So you're doing kind of 55 minute hour, which is pretty exhausting. Uh, and then Sundays come along and I'm like, okay, let's do this as well. This is gonna be fun. It's a very different hour. It's a shorter hour, longer breaks. You've got to cram in more in less time, uh, but it's a huge platform. And uh, I've very much enjoyed it. We launched with AOC. Uh, we've had Greta Thunberg on. We've had White House Chief of Staff Ronald Klain on. Uh, so we've had some great guests uh, in the four weeks we've been on it. And we're at a time of uh, uncertainty, I think, for the cable news industry. The Trump era, which was a ratings boom, is over. I can imagine that you're relieved to a certain extent, as I am, to no longer be covering the Trump show 24-7. But do you feel a certain ratings pressure? I, I think your show, uh, to be clear, does a good job of broadening the mandate of its coverage beyond just domestic poli politics, which is no longer the ratings draw it once was. But do you, do you feel that now that Trump is gone, that there's this sort of pressure to find out you know, what the next story is? Yes and no. I would say, uh, first of all, Trump isn't gone. Uh, some might add sadly to that statement. You know, we still got his statements, his CPAC speeches, his interference in uh, Republican primaries, the court cases. So there's a lot of Trump news around. But yes, you know, that it's not just Trump. I think we entered the new year with a kind of weird, you know, the triple I on the Wednesdays. You had kind of, you know, insurrection, impeachment, inauguration. Uh, you had a bunch of things going on, which uh, boosted ratings and boosted interest in the news, which people thought would drop off straight after November. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, yeah, you could argue it's the worst time to launch a news show at a time when supposedly uh, ratings are going to be just going in one direction. Uh, on the other time, on the other hand, as a human being, uh, I'm delighted that we don't necessarily have to cover, uh, you know, mass deaths from COVID or torture of children at the border, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but look, it's a challenge. I love a challenge. I've launched a few shows in my time. Uh, they've been successes. I hope the new MSNBC show will be a success. Uh, the Peacock show, I would argue, has been a success. As I say, we're nearly on air six months. Uh, we've built up a great audience. Um, a lot of people engaged with it, made a lot of noise, broke some news, had some real exclusives 
uh, Brad Raffensperger interview that I did uh, after the election, the Georgia Secretary of State, the John Bolton interview that I did that went viral uh, globally. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm up for a challenge. I think, as you say, it's a across the board challenge for what do news organizations do? I think we have to tell stories. I think Trump sucked up. I think it was his phrase, Donald Trump said famously back in 2016, uh, to a room full of supporters, I will suck up all the oxygen in the room. And that's what he did. Um, and I think this is actually an opportunity to say, all right, well, what else matters to us? What have we been missing out on? What stories have we not told for the last four, five, six years? Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a real obligation on those of us who care about a lot of issues like poverty and inequality and the state of the economy about foreign policy and the impact of the US military footprint abroad, for example, and even things that are going on that have nothing to do with the United States, like the Rohingya crisis or the Uyghur crisis in China. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to talk about that stuff in a sense. Uh, while it's a challenge to find those viewers and listeners, on the other hand, it's this is what some of us have been you know, saying we wanted, you know, mm -hmm. a break from Trump and an ability to do the news in a quote unquote old fashioned way. Yeah, I, I agree with you because I remember there was a time uh, in during the Trump administration when you would flip on networks like uh, uh, you'd flip on CNN, I recall specifically, and uh, there would just there was such a hyper focus on Trump and uh, everything that he said that there was there you would no longer see segments about international. Uh, issues that were seriously important. And I remember flipping to Fox News and it being the only network that was covering strikes in Syria, because the, obviously they had an incentive to ignore whatever controversy Donald Trump was engulfed in. Um, yeah. But I think it is nice that he has left, you know, that he's at least receded from uh, view. And that allows for more important topics to be covered. Um, because there aren't, you know, the ratings incentives there. Now, you're quite renowned for your interview style, uh, which I suppose you could say is in the UK vein of relentlessly questioning powerful people, as opposed to showing more deference to subjects, which is, I, I think, a little bit more of an American tradition. Have you run into any trouble deploying that more aggressive style in the United States? Depends what you define as trouble. What, what do you mean by trouble? Be more specific. Have you had blowback? I, can, I mean, I can't imagine that, you know, Eric Prince was particularly pleased with the with the interview, the town hall. That the you Eric Prince in. interview I did before I joined NBC, that was with Al Jazeera English back uh, mm. for the show I did for them called Head to Head at the Oxford Union. And that was uh, an interview that raised my profile in the States. Certainly a lot of people who hadn't heard of me before then did hear from me afterwards. I mean, to this day, people ask me two questions. Uh, and I answer, I don't know to both of them. The first question is, why did Eric Prince appear on your show? I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't have done it if I was him. And uh, what was his reaction afterwards? I don't know. He didn't say a word in the green room. He shook my hand left. And I never heard from him again. We never heard from his lawyers, his PR people, anyone's associated with him. So he's not commented on it. Um, so I can't answer. Uh, what the, we didn't get any blowback in the short answer. Mm -hmm. And I think to take a more recent example, I mean, we interviewed John Bolton and he clearly wasn't pleased with how that interview went. Uh, he complained about time. If you watch that clip back, you know, he says, our time's up. We had only agreed 15 minutes. I would argue if you're an interviewee, it's best not to raise the fact that time's done uh, in the no. middle of an interview. Time wasn't done, by the way. That wasn't true. Surprise, surprise. John Bolton wasn't <laughs> telling the truth uh, when he said that. Uh, but that interview is, a, you know, will I get another John Bolton interview? Probably not. And this is where I do have sympathy for my fellow interviews, especially those who do Sunday shows and those who have mm. to regularly book people in power. I don't have that same burden. I want to interview people in power, but you know what? If we don't have a congressman or a senator on my Peacock show tonight, it's not the end of the world. We'll do other interesting guests, other influential guests. But I do sympathize with those whose job it is who have to book a politician every day in the sense that, you know, I can live without 
interviewing John Bolton again. I said, I asked him what I wanted to ask. He probably won't come back on my show, whereas mm. he will be a repeat guest on other shows because they're not asking him whether he has trouble sleeping at night or whether he has blood on his hands or why they lied about Iraq and WMDs. So I sympathize with those of my colleagues who, you know, I think it's become too easy in the modern era to just dismiss journalists and say, well, access journalism. Look, access journalism is a problem. It can be too extreme. It can be over the top. It can involve you, you know, uh, you know, compromising certain ethical standards. All of that, I'm all for criticizing. But the reality is, you know, journalism does require some levels of access if you want to find out what's going on, if you want to have people on your show to hold to account. Now, I just wish we lived in a world where, A, people were more thick-skinned. You know, you take a Ron Klain from the White House. Mm. I have great respect for Ron Klain. He came on the show knowing that I was going to, you know, push him on a number of subjects, and he was very good-natured about it. He didn't leave in any kind of bad way. He, you know, held his own. Um, I wish we had more politicians willing to do that. I'm not saying every member of the White House staff is willing to do that. Every Democrat is. And the other issue I wish we had is I wish we had more journalists trying to be tougher because it would give politicians less space to dodge. The problem right now is, as an American politician, you can look at the media landscape and say, well, who are the tough interviewers? I can count them on one hand, maybe two. Who are the non-tough interviews? Well, obviously I'll do interviews with them. And that's the problem when you have this media landscape with a proliferation of media outlets, TV news channels, cable channels, uh, internet channels, and online news organizations, print papers. You can go wherever you want. And by the way, if you're a Republican who's trying to dodge scrutiny for your election denialism or COVID denialism, or whatever it is, you have an entire right-wing media bubble, a safe space in which to retreat and therefore never have to do a serious interview or be held to account. And I think that's a real problem. And for those of us who want to get Republicans on our show, or, or you know, the non-crazy ones or the non-election deniers, um, it's a problem because why would you? Why would you agree to do an interview with me mm -hmm. when I can, I, you know, I can go talk to Sean Hannity and get softballs all night? It's also that the, those sort of bubbles also have an audience that only consumes media within those bubbles. So they might not even see if one of these people goes on, um, Very good you know, point. goes on with an anchor that is going to challenge them. They not, might not even watch that. Um, good point. Does it with, with, when you're hosting uh, people on your show that, um, that are, I, I'd say, you know, either dishonest pundits or politicians, does it reach a point of diminishing returns when you're like repeatedly telling a guest that the sky is blue and yes. they're loudly insisting it's green? I think the most obvious uh, subject of this recently is Trump surrogates saying, appearing on TV to say that the election was stolen. Do you think it's better to not even talk to those people or is it is it valuable for news consumers to see them exposed by sort of the truth? I mean, it's hard. You could take each case individually. Overall, as a general rule of thumb, no, I don't think we should be platforming election mm -hmm. deniers. And I interviewed Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican from Texas on uh, my MSNBC show on Sunday. And one of the things I asked him at the outset, I had a bunch of questions. I spent a lot of days researching the topic. He and I had, had a back and forth on the Twitter. Uh, I knew he would be prepared. I needed to be prepared. I spent a lot of time preparing for that interview. We carved out a lot of time by cable news standards to do that interview. But my first question was not about immigration. It was, you accept Joe Biden won the election. And he said, correct. If he had said no, or if he had said, well, you would have been was stuck on that I for the entire interview. No, I would have ended the interview. I'm very oh. clear. I would have said goodbye. I'm not going to continue this because I have, you have to have a certain level of hygiene test yeah. uh, as a journalist. And I think what would be the purpose? Maybe I'd have gone a bit of a back and forth yeah. with him, but seeing that he wouldn't budge on sky is blue, up is down, mm -hmm. hot is cold, you know, this idea that, you know, that, that they want to invert reality where we have this situation where we're being told that hot is cold and up is down by Trump and his surrogates then yes, I would have said, there's no point to this. What would be the value 
Mm-hmm. It's like arguing the value of, you know, arguing gravity or the moon landing. Yeah, because or- you know, you know, Dan Crenshaw is a smart guy, and you know that if he w- was saying that that Donald Trump actually won the election, it was stolen, that he would be lying. I mean, I think it's fairly we can conclude that that it's not sort of a, a, I mean, a good faith let's argument. Let's be honest, Aiden. Almost all of them are lying. Now that who, actually, who actually believes in election fraud? Because Sidney Powell doesn't. <laughs> she says it wasn't really factual. <laughs> she walked that back after after a very long crusade. So who's left now, who actually believes it? Maybe Donald Trump has convinced himself so much. He's such a bad loser and narcissist that maybe he might pass a lie detector because he's convinced himself that he really won. Uh, I but think, even that was originally built on a lie. I don't. Yeah, I would not be surprised if he had at this point convinced himself that you know that and and you know he's had people in his ear for the past couple of months telling him you know that there's all this random fraud in Georgia and stuff. And it's all obviously nonsense, but I don't think that he actually look, will look into that stuff particularly thoroughly and might actually end up believing it. But on the on the topic of of calling a lie a lie in media, you've been very forthright in uh, calling out Trump for lying. Uh, but there is an issue with using the term lying in journalism. And it's the reason why publications like the New York Times have been reluctant to use that word. Yeah. It requires intent on the part of the liar. And I, I do think that if it's overused, it, it loses its potency. Yes. Do you think that despite that, that journalists should be less reserved in calling false statements lies? Or, or are you on board with, with it being used sparingly? I don't think we can use it sparingly because there's a lot of lying going on. Mm-hmm. And this, this, this idea that the burden is on journalists the burden is not on journalists. The burden is on the people who have made lying mainstream, who have normalized lying. Look, politicians all lie, right? Politicians sure. lie. Nobody mm-hmm. disputes that point. Politicians have always lied. Nobody disputes that point. I've been interviewing people for 10 years, right? People lie. People will come on and... But there's a difference between, you know, lying about a tax rise and say, well, we didn't raise taxes. We kind of, you know, we actually cut them. Or if you measure it like this, you know, fudging statistics or... You know, there is a big difference between old fashioned political lying that everyone does and that we all understand what it is. We can call it spin, we can call it inaccurate, we can call it whatever it is. And there's a difference in that and what we were just talking about, which is saying Donald Trump won the election. There's mm-hmm. no other description for that other than that is a lie. That is not an inaccuracy, that is not a misstatement. Um, you know, that is a straight up lie. And the way I always put it for Trump, the way with Trump, why it was so easy, it's easier than with another Republican because he speaks so much and he says the same stuff again and again. In his, his The intent problem is dealt with very easily. If Donald Trump says, I pass veterans choice, you know, Daniel Dale of CNN, the fact checker's favorite, you know, one of his favorite fact checks was always, Trump would always say for four years, yeah, I repeatedly. pass veterans choice, yeah. which was Barack Obama. Um, and you know, it was a John McCain thing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you do it once and you're told that's not true, then the next time you do it, it's not a mistake. It's mm. not an accident. The intent is you meant to do it. I mean, that's pretty simple. If you correct someone and they repeat the falsehood, then you've dealt with intent. There's no debate about intent because mm. they know. The first time you go, fine. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe they misspoke. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe they genuinely believed it. But you know, the 30th time when you've corrected someone and they repeat the false statement, that's a lie. I don't think we should then step back and say it's anything other than deliberate lying and gaslighting and BSing. And therefore, I think now, does that apply to every politician? No, Trump is a unique case. But the problem is there's a lot of mini Trumps around. Trump may be gone to go back to our original conversation at the top of this interview. But, you know, he's left behind a legacy of Trumpism and he's left behind a bunch of, um, you know, wannabes. Uh, and you're seeing that across the Republican Party, you're seeing that across the world. I used to do an international interview show for Al Jazeera English. Something I noticed between 2016, 2019 is that more and more foreign politicians, ministers, government spokespeople were imitating Trump using mm-hmm. the same verbal tics, 
the same style of denial, the same accusations of fake news. That, and why not? They saw that it worked for Donald Trump, yeah. the president of the United States. Why can't it work for me in my country when I do interviews? So that is now, that genie's out of the bottle. That is the damage that Trump has done to our discourse and our media coverage and our style of interviews. And therefore, yeah, we can't just put the L word back in the bottle and say, well, it was just reserved for Donald Trump. He's gone. No need to do that. No, we have to be very clear about who is and isn't lying, what is and isn't a lie. Now, I accept if it's not used sparingly, does it use its value? Yes, people say the same thing about racist. Right. Mm. If you use the R word too often. And I agree with that. I'm not sure I know what the answer is. I don't think the answer, therefore, is to withhold using the word when you believe it applies simply out of some misguided, noble, let me protect the value of this word. That's not my job as a journalist. My job is to call it as I see it. Mm -hmm. Now, I agree with you that like there's something unique about Trump's, you know, the lack of shamelessness and the lying that he ushered in um, and how it has sort of uh, trickled down to other members of the Republican Party. I'm curious if you see that particular mendacity as a recent phenomenon. I think there's an argument to be made that the Bush administration and the deference that it received from the press was equally outrageous and even more consequential. And it was obviously a more polite administration than Trump's. Um, which I think afforded a certain kind of coverage. But do you think that the issues that Trump exposed and how the media deals with dishonest presidents, yeah. do you think that predates him? So, of course, dishonesty predates, as I mentioned, politicians mm. always lie. And the George Bush administration was indeed uh, a deeply mendacious administration, especially on foreign policy. Was Were their lies more consequential? Well, globally, definitely, the Iraq sure. war and the lies around WMDs uh, were certainly more consequential, although Donald Trump's lies about COVID at home were much more consequential than anything George W. Bush did on the domestic stage. Mm. Uh, I remember a lot of people on the left criticized me early on in the Trump presidency saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, he hasn't invaded Iraq. Uh, what, you know, at this point in his presidency, George Bush had invaded Afghanistan and Iraq. Trump hasn't done that. He hasn't had the same blood on his hands. And I wish they'd been right and I'd been wrong, but ultimately <laughs> Trump ended his presidency with far more blood on his hands, at least at home, uh, than George W. Bush did. You know, 400,000 dead by the time he left office. Uh, as a direct result of his lies, let's be very clear about that, saying that COVID, there's a classic example, Aiden, saying, going to the White House briefing room and saying that it's no worse than the flu is a lie because we know in private, he was mm. telling Bob Woodward, oh, it's much worse than the flu. Therefore, L word, clearly no debate about intent. Mm -hmm. So those lies cost a lot of lives. Uh, sadly, I wish he's held accountable for them, though I suspect he never will. But in terms of going back, look, Bush administration is an interesting case study, because on the one hand, they told these horrific lies about Iraq, which we knew were lies at the time. Some of us called it out at the time. I, as a whatever I was, what was I at the time, 23, 20, 23 year old, uh, was marching against the war saying this is a lie. Uh, people were calling a lie. Robin Cook, the British foreign minister, resigned from the Blair government saying there are not WMDs. Right. So we knew that these were lies. They were they were dressed up as you know, afterwards as exaggerations or they put too much pressure on the intel or they spun it. it they were lies, right? They were mm -hmm. lies. But even then, and do you remember the famous quote uh, believed to be Karl Rove who said, you know, you guys live in a reality-based uh, world and uh, we mm -hmm. invent our own reality, which is ironic. It was a precursor to the yeah. Trumpian way of uh, looking at the world. But even Bush, and I hate to say this, even George W. Bush, when WMDs were not found in Iraq, he didn't come out and say, well, he did actually on one occasion, he said, we found the WMDs referring to some mobile vans. But in general, the position of the Republican Party and George Bush in 2003, 4, 5 was not, well, we found the WMDs. Uh, WMDs are found. That is what Donald Trump would do. Let's be very mm. clear. Yeah, Cent Trump, Central Park 5. Donald Trump we have invaded Iraq. Yeah. yeah, Donald Trump still a lot of examples. they're guilty. 
Right? Yeah. There still says they're guilty. Donald Trump had invaded Iraq. I can assure you, Donald Trump would have never accepted that there were not WMDs found there. Um, and even the lies they told about WMDs were kind of, as I say, uh, what was the vo- phrase used in the UK? Sexing up the intelligence mm. uh, is slightly different to these kind of lies, which Donald Trump tells, which are completely based in nothing, mm. just literally just pulled out of his backside. One thing I've always found interesting about uh, the Trump era is that when you talk to Americans, and I think there's this assumption that uh, many of his controversial staffers uh, will have problems sort of rehabilitating themselves and being accepted back into polite society, whether they want to work in media or elsewhere. I wish. And I've always said that that's absurd. They're going to have no problem getting jobs in media and in we politics. We don't do accountability and, in the United yeah. States, certainly not in Washington, D.C. That's my question. Do you think American media has a problem with how forgiving it is of public figures to enable or participate in terrible things that are done by presidential administrations? Not just the American media, American society and culture as a whole. are very forgiving mm. of politicians. That's why so many politicians with so many scandals either stay in office uh, or run again for office. We're speaking in a week where Eric Greitens, accused of horrific things uh, in Missouri, former governor, is now announcing that he's going to run as a Trumpy candidate for the Senate. It uh, doesn't matter what he's accused of. Um, you know, you look at, uh, we're speaking on a day where Politico decided to ask Stephen Miller for his opinion on Joe Biden keeping journalists out of facilities at the border, as if he's just some neutral pundit to ask for his take on immigration. Stephen Miller, who presided over what doctors and experts have called torture and child abuse uh, at the southern border. Stephen Miller, who was caught sending actual white nationalist propaganda emails to government members, right? That Stephen Miller is suddenly, what? Uh, a go-to guy for a quote on an immigration, on an immigration story of all stories. So, you know, this is a problem. We see Sarah Huckabee Sanders running for governor, getting a book deal. Uh, we see, uh, I believe Kellyanne Conway, if you believe some of the reporting has a big book deal coming. Um, you know, we saw Sean Spicer turn up at wherever it was, Harvard with Corey Lewandowski, not to mention turning up on Dancing with the Stars. Uh, We've seen people like Dina Powell and Gary Cohn return to Wall Street, fine, I'm sure. Uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka are going to return to their social scene, fine. No, there's not going to be accountability. I wish there was going to be, but no, I don't have any faith that we will hold these people to account for long enough or consistently enough, or to the extent they should be held to account. Maybe they'll be snubbed from a dinner or an ad campaign or a particular board, but that's not the... I mean, 400,000 people have died by the time Trump left office. There should be criminal inquiries into the people who were behind that COVID policy. There should be criminal inquiries into the people who were behind the kidnapping of children from their parents at the border. And the fact that there's not says a lot about how forgiving we are as, as a media, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a political system, and as a general public, far too forgiving in my view. And that, the problem with that is if you don't hold people to, to account, you just get much worse crimes happening in the future, much worse abuses of power. Mm. Now, you hail from England, uh, where uh, a man named Rupert Murdoch has enormous power in media. And he also has remarkable influence in the United States, thanks to Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Post. And now Rupert Murdoch and another set of investors are launching two right-wing news networks in the UK, uh, which seem to be inspired by the Fox model and presented as a sort of challenge to the BBC. Does that worry you, this idea that Fox, the Fox News model could be imported to the UK? It worries me because the UK often does what the US does just a little bit later. And therefore the media scene, I mean, just look, I haven't lived in the UK for nearly six years now. And because of COVID, I haven't been back there for a year and a half, but Mm -hmm. just following some of the media and political debates in the UK, they're so familiar, right down from Boris Johnson and his Trumpian imitation to the attacks on the media, 
to even the whole you know debate about woke left even that's been the culture wars language of the united states uh, has been imported into the uk and that's where these two channels are coming out of in fact andrew neil who's a very uh, respected right-wing journalist but had a bbc gig for a long time great interviewer uh, mm. destroyed ben shapiro to quote uh, a ben fantastic interview in that famous uh, fantastic yeah. interview uh, where ben shapiro <laughs> thought he was a lefty hilariously um andrew neil is actually launching gbtv is one of the two channels and mm -hmm. you know it kind of my heart sank when i saw that his his show is going to have a segment called woke watch which tells you everything you need to know about that this also made channel. me cringe yeah, it made me cringe, that. but it also yeah. kind of made me sad because it tells you everything you need to know about the channel and the, mm. the fight it's going to have, the people they're hiring. Uh, they are going to bash, you know, the BBC is too left wing. The BBC itself is being pulled to the right by some of Boris's appointments and the new director general and the attacks they've had since Brexit as being seen as anti-Brexit. And yeah, it's, it's, I mean, the only thing that makes me feel a little bit more positive is the UK still has regulation uh, of its broadcast media. Uh, therefore, there's limits to how uh, you know, partial versus impartial, these TV channels can be, uh, although one of them is purely online for now, I believe. And then the other issue, of course, is they have to rely 100% on advertising. So it's a big lift. Unlike Fox News, which people don't realize in this country doesn't have to rely heavily on advertising, has this deal with cable companies. In fact, all the cable channels do. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, it's a different financial model. Uh, and that's why when people target Fox News advertisers, uh, and there's that a whole debate about works. that. It's it's yeah. it's a different argument. Tucker Carlson's lost most of his advertisers, but uh, is still able to pump out white nationalist propaganda every night uh, in a prime time slot with a big audience. Do you still do you watch Fox News? I don't watch it in a kind of appointment to view, mm -hmm. but I try and see what's being said uh, by the anchors because unfortunately it affects our discourse. I mean, you know, it has a big audience. Mm -hmm. To be clear, not as big as people assume. Uh, but also it has a massive control over the Republican Party. I mean, the reality is that when we talk about wither the Republican Party, future of the GOP, post-Trump party, why won't it change and recognize how badly it's... I mean, all roads lead back to Fox. You cannot understand the modern Republican Party unless you understand Fox News. People who say, oh, I don't watch Fox or I don't take Fox seriously or we shouldn't overblow the importance of Fox. Um, no, I mean, everything comes back to Fox News. You cannot understand the modern Republican Party without understanding the pressure that they exercise, the influence that they operate, the fact that, oh, why won't this Republican senator stand up to Trump? It's not just because he's worried about being primaried by a Trump supporter, it's because he's worried about Fox. And of course, now the Fox mini-me's, the OANNs, the Newsmaxes, et cetera. And I think, you know, there was even a study done, I think, I can't remember which study it was. There was even a study done that showed like, in counties where, I have to remember the exact details, you have to fact check me on this, but in counties where there's a higher viewership compared to non-Fox viewers, there's less spending on public services. Like there's this like, <laughs> correlation. I don't know how robust that study was, but I remember seeing it on somewhere like Vox. But you know, it, my point being that it has a much bigger across the board influence than we give it credit for. And I hate to give it credit for it because obviously that, that it makes them happy when you say this stuff. But you know, take COVID denialism. We can't win the battle against COVID denialism without dealing with the issue that Fox News is promulgating it. It's propagating. If you're watching Fox every night, you are getting that. And you know, what's so disgusting is that Rupert Murdoch, an immigrant to the UK, is living in the UK as whatever he is, 90-year-old, 89-year-old, however old he is. He gets in first in line and gets his vaccination done weeks ago. Meanwhile, you have Tucker Carlson pushing vaccine skepticism uh, on his show uh, the same day. I just find that completely irresponsible and reckless. But I don't know. I don't know how you solve the Fox issue. It, it, is a, it, it, it is a real problem when it comes down to our democratic discourse. I mean, you have Brett Baer this week talking about uh, Sidney Powell's lawsuit and about how well, you know, 
she says no reasonable person believed her, not mentioning the fact that her lawsuit was given, uh, sorry, her Dominion conspiracy that was given loads of airtime on Fox towards the start of this whole post-election period. Fox is, I should note, is also being sued by Smartmatic, another voting uh, technology company, uh, for $1.3 billion. And they benched Lou Dobbs. They did. They did. After years. um, Did not bench Maria Bartiromo, who is also named in the suit and is now uh, guest hosting their 7 p.m. show on Fox News. Um, Would you go on uh, Tucker Carlson's show if invited on? No, I was invited on. I've been invited on by... I've been invited on by Tucker Carlson, pre-joining NBC as a pundit. I was invited on both by Tucker Carlson and by Laura Ingram. Uh, and I said no to both because, I mean, for multiple reasons. The number one reason is, uh, and this sounds really, uh, you know, I've had arguments with friends of mine who don't agree with this position, but, you know, I don't want to legitimize the platform. And people say, well, you going or not going on is not going to affect their ratings. I know I'm not that megalomaniacal to think that if I don't go on their show, people won't watch it. Of course not. But my point is, I mentioned earlier, you know, the question to Republican Congress members, do you accept the election was won by Joe Biden? There's something called a hygiene test. You have to have a hygiene test in your personal life and your uh, career. And for me, Fox News doesn't meet that hygiene test. I can't go on a channel that pumps out uh, what is akin to white nationalist propaganda every night, COVID denialism, uh, with tens of thousands of people, including friends of mine, have passed away. I can't go on a channel that, you know, uh, you know, demonizes uh, Muslim women who are in Congress uh, as somehow un-American or anti-American. No, I can't go on those, certainly not on those primetime shows where, you know, it is just propaganda. During the Trump era, it was state TV, and now it is just, you know, pushing, you know, it's QAnon adjacent. You look at Tucker Carlson now basically carrying water for the QAnon conspiracy, which the FBI thinks is a domestic terror threat. So no, I don't want to be part of any of that. And then separately, look, they don't play fair. When I have right-wingers on my show, I bend over backwards to be fair, to make sure that it's a good faith conversation, to make sure that they have time to speak, to make sure that there's some level of respect and it's not just you know fighting, name calling, screaming. There's no value in that. The edit, that we don't edit people badly if it's an edited interview, not a live interview. Unfortunately, that's not the case. I mean, I, I shared um, uh, Rutger Bregman's interview the other day. People, people want to know, why don't you go on Fox News? The simple answer is Google Rutger Bregman, the Dutch uh, journalist historian who did go on, who was invited on Tucker Carlson. He's the guy who show. spoke at Davos, correct? He is. He is. Yeah. And, and he went on Tucker Carlson's show and he recorded his end of it, thankfully. And he called out Tucker Carlson's hypocrisy and Carlson swore at him, verbally abused him and didn't air the interview. Uh, Bregman then put it up online and it went viral. I think it has 14 million views at the current. I mean, that tells you everything you know. Do you remember the days of Bill O'Reilly, Aiden, where he would cut the mic of guests uh, who he didn't want to speak anymore? Max Boot of the Washington Post has claimed that Tucker uh, turns down the volume on guests when they come on. I don't know how true that is, but that's what that's what Max has said. So no, I, I, I think you need to play fair and you need to not be pushing out hate speech on a nightly basis. So no, I don't think there's a value and there's a big debate amongst Democrats. Elizabeth Warren said she wouldn't go on. Bernie Sanders did go on, Pete Buttigieg has gone on. And, and you know, people applaud Buttigieg and say, smart guy, look, he owned the host. And Bernie Sanders went on and got applause from a town hall. The problem with that argument is those people don't watch Fox all the time because Bernie Sanders will go on and do a great job of putting a progressive case out there. But that doesn't cancel out the next four hours where Bernie Sanders is then dunked on and everything he's said is edited out of context or factually rebutted, but not with fact. So no, I don't personally know. That's just me. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, each to their own. That's my own personal view that I have a hygiene test and a channel that pushes QAnon and Islamophobia and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about globalists and COVID denialism and vaccine denial. No, not for me, sorry. 
Is there anyone on Fox that you think is a good journalist or that you appreciate their work? Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace is undeniably mm. uh, a great interviewer. Um, by American TV standards, he's one of the best. Um, he did a, he did one of the only two good TV interviews uh, with Donald Trump of the Trump era. Both were last year, both last summer with Jonathan Swan for Axios HBO and Chris Wallace for Fox. I'm talking about not the debate where it was a car crash for him. I think he admits yeah. that, but the interview he did for Fox uh, with Trump face-to-face, -face, I think- Both, I should note, are previous guests of this podcast, Chris Wallace. Right. And, 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 you know, he turned up with facts. He did follow-ups. He pushed back. He, he and Jonathan both proved that you can interview Trump in real time and fact-check him in real time, uh, and he won't walk out on you. Um, but no, I think Chris Wallace is a good interviewer. You know, he has his own biases, as do we all. Um, let's not pretend he's not biased. But look, you know, he asked Tom Cotton the other day. You know, I, I did a tweet about Tom Cotton claiming that the relief uh, American rescue plan is going to give money checks to prisoners. And I did a tweet that went viral saying, you voted for two previous versions of a COVID relief plan, including checks, which went to prisoners. Um, and no one was calling him out on that. And he went on Fox and Chris Wallace called him out. Now, Tom mm. Cotton's not going to come on my show. And do I want him on my show? Who knows? Um, but at least he's not election denier as far as I'm aware. But, you know, Chris Wallace called him out. And I'll say, good for Bravo. that. Good for Chris Wallace. Now, the, the big news this week uh, is tragically another mass shooting. Uh, and one remarkable thing that I noticed in the wake of, of the shooting in, in Boulder, Colorado, which was the second uh, in like the United States in the last week, um, is how little it made waves on Twitter and in the news. I mean, the wall-to-wall -wall coverage that used to be afforded massacres of this kind seems to kind of have receded, which is a fairly harrowing development. Do you think that American media is equipped to deal with a news story like this that is happening so much that it has become expected? It's a great question. I think, actually, I would a little bit push back. I would say the mm -hmm. Colorado coverage was actually uh, quite strong, uh, definitely at NBC News, on MSNBC, on Peacock. We covered it on the night. We covered it the following night. We've covered it since. Uh, Fox News ignored it until it turned out that it was uh, an Arab-American uh, alleged uh, gunman. That was uh, convenient. But no, I think... Look, I think there's a bigger problem, which is, again, this is not a media issue. This is a societal issue. Have we become numb to mass shootings? Clearly, we have as a society. Uh, you know, my team and I were discussing this in an editorial meeting the other day. You know, the, the turning point uh, was um, uh, Sandy Hook, right? Once you, once you say that as a country, you're willing to let kids be massacred and not change the law, then yeah, nothing else is going to change that. High school shootings are not going to change that. Synagogue shootings are not going to change that. Walmart shootings are not going to change that. Um, spa shootings are not going to change that. That's the problem. Uh, Sandy Hook is that dividing line for me when I look back at the modern history of uh, American gun control debate. So yeah, I mean, the media tries to cover it and tries to cover it in a factual way, but it's hard. It's hard to cut through to people when, and you know, the same thing applies to COVID deaths. We became numb. To, America becomes numb to death very quickly. It's a big country. There's a lot of news and, you know, I think Charlie Walzel of the New York Times wrote that op-ed last year saying basically COVID deaths will be the new gun death where we'll just become used to them. I think I think both of those, sadly, those categories of death do have those similarities. So it's a tough call for journalists. I think for a lot of journalists covering on the ground, it's harrowing. It's hard, especially those people who've covered multiple shootings. I, you know, My heart goes out to those of my colleagues who've had to cover that stuff. Uh, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I would struggle. So there has been some excellent, brave reporting on uh, mass shootings. And there has been an attempt to try and give it the attention it needs. But yeah, it got swallowed up in everything else. Will we have more attention now? There's two House bills that have passed. 
uh, on background checks. Will we in the media give that debate over those bills enough attention? I hope so, but you can hold us to it. Now, my last question, you wrote a piece at the beginning of February uh, that you might have been wrong about Joe Biden after vocally opposing his candidacy during the Democratic primary. Do you think his administration has been a success so far? What's what's your argument there? Whether it's been a success is hard to say because mm. it's very hard to pick a minute. You know, success requires a bit more time, I think, sure. to make that decision. Has it been much better than I expected? Yes. Has it done a lot of objectively good things? Yes. And that's why I wrote that piece because he genuinely did things that I didn't think he would pull off. Either he didn't want to do or wouldn't be able to do. I didn't think that when he said, I'm going to do a $1.9 trillion bill, it would end up being 1.9 trillion. I thought they're going to end up compromising on the amount. No, he said 1.9 trillion. He got 1.9 trillion. I have great respect for that. That's an achievement. That is a success in and of itself as a bill. And, you know, I listed in my op-ed for msnbc.com all of those areas where I'd been so skeptical, whether it was immigration, racism, criminal justice reform, um, uh, COVID, uh, the economy. Um, And he has done a lot of things that impress me. That doesn't mean I'm going to give him a pass either in my op-ed writing or in my TV show. When Ron Klain, his chief of staff, came on my show, I pushed him on, uh, on, for example, the pass that they gave to MBS, the Saudi Crown Prince, for killing Jamal Khashoggi. Shameful. I pushed him on uh, the state of these uh, facilities at the border. You know, you could blame Donald Trump all you want for why we have this crisis at the border, quote unquote. You know, Biden, we're all arguing over what use of crisis. I would argue it's a humanitarian crisis, mm. at very minimum. Uh, and that is definitely on the Biden folks. They need to improve that situation ASAP. I don't care about well, we inherited this. That's nonsense. There are children not able to shower for five days. I'm sorry. Uh, the richest country in the history of the world can fix that overnight if it wants to, and it should. So, you know, I held into account on a m- bunch of issues. The filibuster. I think Joe Biden is deeply mistaken not to call for abolition of the filibuster, although he's slightly starting to move now under pressure. So, you know, yes, I think as someone, remember when I criticized him heavily, I wasn't at NBC. I was an op-ed columnist at The Intercept. <laughs> Uh, and I was very critical of Joe Biden during the primaries. Uh, I had my own candidates who I preferred. Uh, but now, look, I'm covering the administration. Uh, I have my opinions. I'm an opinion host. I make them very clear where I stand. I want to get rid of the filibuster, for example. I've not hidden that every night on my Peacock show or my MSNBC show. But at the same time, I'll hear arguments tonight's show, in fact. We're going to have someone who doesn't support getting rid of the filibuster. We're going to have that discussion. But I'll also you know, give the Biden administration a chance to make their case. I had Cedric Richmond. Uh, senior White House official on the show last night. And we went back and forth over the uh, subsidies for COBRA in the American Rescue Plan. I think the American Rescue Plan overall is a historic piece of legislation, more progressive than anything else I've seen in my lifetime, but it doesn't mean it's perfect. And therefore, when a White House official comes on, I'm not just going to tell him how wonderful it is. I'm going to say, why are you doing this? Mm. And we had that back and forth. So that's what I plan to carry on doing. Hold power to account. Great stuff. All right. Thanks so much, Mehdi. I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks so much, Aiden. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Mehdi Hassan on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.